there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to an extra special episode of T4C. In fact, it's our 200th episode. That's right, number 200. And to celebrate, we've pulled together a 200th milestone mashup with clips from some of our favorite guests, including professionals with advice on why faith, family, and friends are the trifecta to build a happy life. How to find your true north, the value of a multicultural background, some stellar career advice, and why Doritos could be making you depressed. The last topic is from a fascinating conversation I had with Dr. Ellen Vora, who is an integrative, board-certified psychiatrist. In case you're new to T4C, we are a resource for young people 18 to 28, college students, grad students, and young professionals to help them turn their degrees into careers they love. I also interview experts on wellness, health, and self-care like Dr. Vora because what good is it to have a job you love if your mental and or your physical health sucks? Trust me, I learned that the hard way, my friends, which is why I don't want you to make the same mistakes I did. By the way, if you want to listen to more of the interviews that we're featuring here today, just check out the show notes for this episode where we've listed the names of the professionals who were interviewed and the number of the episode where they're featured to help you find it a little quicker. And remember, if you haven't signed up yet for the Java Junkies Journal, that's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek of the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week, it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number 4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Thanks, everybody. And now grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated cold brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation with seven of my favorite T4C guests. Dr. Brooks, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Always. I'm always caffeinated and ready to go. Great to be with you, Andrea. Excellent. Well, I am so looking forward to digging into this topic with you. I know you've spent a huge amount of your time researching, reading other people's research and studying to kind of put your finger on the secret to living a happy life. And as you know, the Time for Coffee audience are 18 to 25 year olds. So people who are just getting started and just trying to figure out their path. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to begin by breaking down this demographic into three main categories. The first are those young people who are still in school right now, currently in college, working on getting their BAs or their BSs. The second are those who've already graduated and are working in jobs they like, hopefully love. And the third are those who've graduated and may not have jobs or maybe in jobs that they don't really like very much. Could you speak to 
each of these groups where they are in their lives today and help them to internalize lessons to help them intentionally create and orchestrate a happy life beginning now. So it's interesting to let's do a quick course on on what makes people happy. Uh, we have a tendency to think, particularly when we're young, that happiness is all within the realm of our decisions. And if we just do the right things, if we make the right decisions, if we act the right way and we get a little bit lucky, everything should be okay. The first thing to keep in mind is about half of our happiness is genetic. And how do we know this? Because there are these studies on identical twins that were separated at birth and adopted to separate families. And they get them back together again when they're in their 40s and they do personality tests and they find out what part of their personalities are genetic and which are environmental. It's a pretty easy thing to do statistically. But what you find is about half of their baseline happiness actually is genetic. It comes from their common genetic code. So if you feel if you're a really unhappy person, it really is kind of your mother's fault <laughs> or your father's or both. Uh, gloomy parents have gloomy kids. And now, now why is that important? It shouldn't make people upset. It's that's actually really, really empowering to find that there is a groove that you kind of get in. But here's the better news. About half of your happiness, most of that is actually in your hands. Some of it's circumstantial, but a lot of it has to do with the decisions that you make. And, and part of grabbing that is, is recognizing that you shouldn't try to, you shouldn't have a goal of being happy all the time or being happy every day. That's not the right thing to do. So let's take this first group, one of the first groups that you're talking about, people who are out of college and they're working and they don't really like their jobs. Super normal. What we find is that uh, the average kid graduating from, from college today, this is the age of my kids, are going to have on average nine distinct jobs in four totally different careers. Your first job on average will last about 18 months. Uh, and and in, so, so don't if you don't like your job that much, don't worry about it. Just do it. Do a good job and learn as much as you possibly can. That's basically the bottom line. And in so doing, by the way, that's also the formula for being happy. <laughs> so, so not liking your job all that much, it's, it's okay. It's not forever. And you're going to learn a bunch of skills and the things you have to do to be better at that job are going to make you the happiest possible person. If by chance you really, really love your first job, well, more power to you. That's really great. Enjoy it as much as you possibly can. But again, be focused on learning as much as you possibly can and serving as much as you possibly can. And then when you're in college, basically think of it as your job. <laughs> I mean, people have a tendency to think of their studies as getting ready for their work. No, no, no. Your work when you're in college is, is, is studying. No matter what you're doing, it's vocational. Think about it as intentionally vocational and think of it as learning as much as you can, having as many experiences as you possibly can and serving others as much as you possibly can. In other words, it's the same solution for everybody in all three of those baskets. So what about people who may be in a job that they like or love, but are unhappy. Well, again, that gets a lot of that usually gets back to the fact that the happiness or unhappiness they get is, is outside of the realm of their work. So to begin with, again, you've got a 50% <laughs> genetic component to your happiness and you might actually have some circumstances. So you find with young people, a big part of the happiness on the circumstantial side comes with their romantic lives. And so they're getting tossed on a sort of jetsam on the sea of, of relationships. It's much easier when, when you're my age and, you know, I've been married for going on 30 years at this point. I mean, there's just, it's, it's, there's variability, but it's not like when I was in my early 20s, for Pete's sake, when everything was a complete crisis. So a lot of that is affecting people's lives and their happiness. And the other thing to keep in mind is that family life and community life and, and, and metaphysical life, you know, even religious life, these things affect happiness an awful lot as well. Okay, so if you like your job or your job is just okay and you're really, really unhappy, the one thing, here's the advice that I've got, pay attention to faith, pay attention to your family and pay attention to your friends. And if you pay attention to those three F's, you have a much higher likelihood of enjoying your life than you currently do. 
So when you said our immune system is terrible at fighting off Doritos for Java junkies listening right now, and trust me, I used to enjoy Cool Ranch as much as the next, you know, me too. snacker out there. But what is our body doing? What is our brain doing to give us the message that, hey, please don't feed me any more Doritos? Well, if it is, that message is getting overruled by the drug-like effects of these foods. So I too was uh, partial to Cool Ranch. I always thought it was the superior Dorito flavor. Um, But basically, I think the lucky, if you think about in your friend circle, people you know, the ones who are like, my stomach hurts, you know, (laughs) like this gives me migraines, this gives me a headache and that makes me bloated. We think of them as the sickly ones, but it's possible that their bodies are actually in certain ways better at communicating, hey, this food is poison. Whereas those of us who are just resilient and bouncing around can eat anything and feel fine. Sometimes it's actually like that we're not good at listening to our bodies. And sometimes it's actually that our bodies are not good at communicating. So some people's bodies say, hey, this food gives me a headache or makes me bloated. But usually what's the stronger signal is that these foods are very, they they behave like drugs, you know, in food science, these foods are engineered to hit that bliss point of perfect amount of salt and fat and it has that perfect crunch right in that palate of your mouth. And basically we're just really like they know human beings and they're like, this will be something that you'll just like all of us, everyone listening right now who has ever tasted a Dorito is salivating a little bit right now as we're thinking about this and talking about it. So it's a drug and we get a little bit addicted to it. And I think that usually overrules the signals from our body of this is making me sick. What about the way it manifests in their mental health? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes beyond Doritos. It may be other foods out there. In fact, it is other foods out there in which we are inadvertently inflaming our bodies and our brains. How can Java junkies better listen to the signals that their bodies are sending them? Great question. Yeah. So I think that it's the real key, the gold standard here is to do an elimination diet. I like the whole 30 diets. I think that they're just brilliant and how they've crafted the verbiage around it. It's very concise and pithy and it's funny. And they're basically like, because what I encounter when I tell patients to do an elimination diet is, hey doc, this is hard. And I usually really just empathize because I live this life and I'm like, you know what? It is hard. It really is hard. It takes discipline. It takes preparation. It takes a little bit of sacrifice. But <laughs> whole 30 is like, no, no, no. Childbirth is hard. This is not hard. <laughs> so I like putting it in that perspective. It is challenging, but it's doable. And I think ways to listen to your body. So most people, like when I talk to patients about gluten, they're like, no, nah, gluten's not a problem for me. It's like, okay, well, what makes you think that? And usually people will think, well, you know, my digestion is fine. So I don't think I have a problem with gluten. And so an inflammatory food like gluten, that can show up in a lot of different ways. If you have eczema, if you have ADHD, autism, learning disability, chronic sinus infections, migraines, other headaches, bloating, distension, heartburn, like GERD, hemorrhoids, chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, any autoimmunity at all, psoriasis, thyroid condition, rheumatoid arthritis, and mental illness, really, if you have depression, anxiety, 
insomnia, ADHD, bipolar, schizophrenia, all of these in my mind point towards gluten. And I don't mean to just be like a hammer that only sees gluten. I swear I try every day to, to not tell somebody in my practice to go gluten free. I really try, but it's just, it's always just like too obvious. Somebody is chronically constipated or they have eczema or they are always bloated or they have a family member with schizophrenia. These are all to me indications that gluten is playing a role. Can mm-hmm. I just yep. want to interject here because one of the yeah. one of the responses that I've heard from people and frankly from other medical doctors is but that person doesn't have Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Celiac, yeah. Or excuse me, celiac yeah. disease. Yeah, that yeah. person doesn't have celiac. Why do you think that is the wrong marker? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't. I, I, most of the time they don't, although celiac incidence is actually increasing, which is a little disturbing. But so they don't. But celiac is the tip of the iceberg. It's one of many, many, many manifestations of the body not tolerating gluten. And there are a lot of different components to gluten that your body cannot tolerate. And there are a lot of different ways that your immune system is, is getting activated by it. So celiac is one of many. But I think that the interesting resistance to me is that I have you know, encountered so many of my colleagues, so many of my patients, other doctors say, we tested you for celiac. You don't have it. So no need to avoid gluten. And I usually just say, is it worth a month trying going gluten-free and just seeing how you feel? And if your mood gets more stable or you're suddenly pooping every day, then who cares what the blood test shows you? It doesn't matter if you have celiac or not at that point. We've increased your quality of life, we've improved your functioning by going gluten-free. I do still build caveats into that because it's not something I approach lightly to convert someone over to the dark side of the gluten-free lifestyle because it's a big change. And I think that when you pulled back the curtain and showed someone you can live without bloating and without migraines, I think it makes them very sensitive. So if they decide this isn't worth my trouble and I want to go back to gluten, sometimes they really do feel a lot worse suddenly. And I kind of made that problem for them by having them go gluten-free. So I don't approach it lightly. It's all a balance of how is your suffering, you know, and is it, does it warrant making these kinds of lifestyle changes? Before I get into the amazing work that you do at SSNK, Lenny, I want to ask you, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten? Well, I share this with everybody I can, and I'm excited you asked me. The one sort of caveat I have to make or note is that the best career advice I ever got was from your father, Ted. And as Andrea said at the outset, we are interconnected as family friends and have known each other for a while. And I know Andrea's mom and dad, who are both incredibly successful, Grace, Ann, and Ted. And we were in a pool and I was deciding whether to stay in politics and potentially go work in a presidential administration in the White House, whether I was going to go continue working for the agency firm that I was at. It was a political consultancy firm. They were offering me a lot of money because they were merging with another company. So it was sort of the proverbial golden handcuffs. Or the most risky thing was starting SS&K and this business around this crazy, bizarre idea of taking the political model into the business world to help brands and organizations going through change. And your dad told me something really wise. He looked at me and he said, listen, 10% of the people in the world have the good fortune, the luck, the circumstances, the intellect to really do what they love and make a real impact to the communities and the people they interact with. And then he paused and he looked at me and he smiled and he said, but here's the trick. Only one half of one quarter of 1% of that 10% 
really tiny, have the guts to go do that. And he looked at me, said, go do that. It is a much more fun, much more rich way to live your life. He said, I promise you, it will not be easy. It will not be a straight line. There will be ups and downs, but you will wake up at the end of your professional life feeling happy, satisfied and and really energized pretty much every day of your life. And I thought about that advice over the 25 years. I've always tried to employ it. I've shared it with others and it's really worked for me. And I've heard other people come back to me, students, colleagues, and say, best advice you ever gave me. And I always have to say, well, it was Ted Koppel's advice. It wasn't mine and so on and so forth. But best advice I ever got. Well, I love that story for so many reasons, not the least of which is he never gave me that advice. (laughs) I've never gotten that advice from him. And I remember actually when I was 21 years old and I had made the decision to go into the Peace Corps and I'd been accepted to go to Nepal. And my father said to me, and this was probably 10 years before he gave you the advice he did. So maybe he had grown up since then. But he said to me, Lenny, I kid you not. So you're going to go do the Peace Corps for two years. And then what? Long story short, I ended up not going into the Peace Corps. But it was like he was so impatient for me to be able to spell out what I was going to be doing with the rest of my life. My father was a very young parent. So he was extremely young at that point. I'm glad to know that he gave you much better advice than he gave me. So I think there's a rule of thumb in life. I know I've suffered it. And maybe you have as a parent. As wise as we are sometimes with our kids' friends or colleagues or people who work with us or students. We're pretty much dumb idiots when it comes to our kids and we don't make as good of, at least they don't like listening to us or we're not as comfortable. So I would give them a pass if I was you. So what about the focus on race and race relations? When you see me, you see I'm black. And that means a lot of things to a lot of people. It's very often what other people see first. And I personally now believe that it is the issue in America that has to be dealt with before we can heal ourselves and move forward. And I have felt that since 1989 when I first did a story called True Colors at ABC. And we put a black guy and a white guy in identical situations. They actually looked alike and had them. They were actually professional testers. And we had them try to find a home, look for jobs, etc. And it turned into a landmark piece. A lot of companies actually used that story to train for bias. And that was great. And that was wonderful. And that was a beautiful accolade that actually did change my career. But it also changed my life because I grew up very sheltered and privileged, even though I grew up in the 70s in the South. I still had loving family and friends, both black and white and and mentors and teachers who really looked out for me and protected us. And so as I began to observe the world through the eyes of a journalist and meet people who did not grow up like I did and who did not grow up with what I had, I did become aware painfully that race played a part in it. And so I just gravitated towards stories that pointed out our similarities and the absurdity of being treated differently by the one thing that we were different in. It just seemed crazy to me, right? The only thing that's really different to most of us, we have the same desires. We want love. We need food. We need exercise. We need shelter. Everyone wants the same thing. The difference is the color of our skin. And America's history of weaponizing flesh tones to make a system of polarity based on just the skin you're born in. 
And it seemed absurd to me. Now, of course, there's literature, there's science, there's art. There are kinds of readings and extraordinary philosophies and, and amazing punditry uh, surrounding these issues. But it all boils down to your DNA, the color of your skin. It's how your D and your N and your A settle in that determines the skin color. And when you're born into this country, it defines so very much. And I just thought that was crazy. Let's just look at this. <laughs> How else can we crack this nut? Okay, we've done the violence. We've done the story via the violent movements. We've done the history. Let's look at stories that examine our similarity. And then let's look at stories that move the conversation further along. Eugenia, how should aspiring African-American journalists prepare for this industry? Be smart. Your song is not a one note song. Approach it from the view of, okay, we're going to win. We're going to win. I'm going to win in the sense that I'm going to get to tell my stories. I'm going to win in the sense that I'm going to be a journalist. So I would say be a journalist first. Learn what that means. Learn how to investigate. Learn how to research. Learn how to find the people who tell the stories. And just be really good at that. And then have a thick skin. There are going to be people who have jobs who are not going to hire you because they don't know any black people and they don't know how they are. I literally had a conversation with someone, a white manager, not here, who said about this really capable young candidate that he doesn't smile a whole lot. And I said, is it because he's listening to you? <laughs> you know, like, what What do you mean? What if he's just listening to you? I mean, I listen intently to people and I'm not looking at them like a clown with a big goofy smile on my face. Like, what are you talking about? And this manager had to rethink and said to me, you know what? Maybe you're right. The, the candidate that was talking about is African-American. And... I think had I not been in the room and having that conversation with that particular manager, it could have gone a different way. He may have completely ignored this candidate. So that's a cultural thing. People will always have young viewers of color. People will always have their own perspective brought in. I don't believe it's your responsibility to always try to make people feel comfortable in a very negative sense. But I also don't think it's right to make them feel uncomfortable either because people want to work with people they want to work with. That's just the truth, right? You can be really great, but if you're a jerk, no one wants to work with you, period. Joe, your new book is entitled The Spartan Way. Can you give the Time for Coffee community a quick overview of what the Spartan Way means and why they might want to adopt it? Yeah, basically, it's a way of life. And it's these ancient principles. And, and the ancient principles, the first one, no surprise, is, is find your true north. And and I go through the chapter trying to explain how to find your true north and why it's so important and giving you examples of people that have found their true north. And if you find it, it pulls you through life like a magnet. It's easy to wake up in the morning. It's easy to go the extra mile. And so, but most people, most people don't know what their true north is. They don't know what their purpose is. Um, the second one we just spoke about is commitment. And the same thing. What is commitment? How, what are the tricks of the trade? How can I commit to something? What should I do that'll make it stick? Here are some examples. Here's some great real life stories. And so I go through these principles, these ancient 
principles that, that apply to anybody who's successful at anything uses these principles so that you can crush, you can crush life. You're not going to crush life. If, um, I've had thousands of employees. Okay. And I'm lucky if 20% of them go above and beyond and are amazing and happy and energy givers, not energy takers. And if you follow these principles, not because I wrote them, you can find them in, in other, in other books. I'm sure if you follow these principles and you really take them to heart, you will be more successful no matter how you define success. Doesn't have to be money, could be whatever. And, and um, you'll be a more successful monk, you'll be a more successful mobster, a more successful mom. <laughs> whatever it is you're doing, you'll be more successful at it. That's what the world needs, more successful mobsters out there. <laughs> hey Joe, when you were in college at Cornell University, you majored in textiles. First of all, why did you pick textiles and did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I applied to Cornell as a kind of a fun thing. I I had no intention of going to college. I was already running that business back in Queens. My grades weren't that good. I didn't want to waste four years in school. I considered it a waste. And a friend of mine suggested we go to Cornell. I thought, well, you know, I'll do an interview, but there's no way they're going to accept me. And I just don't have the time. It wasn't part of my plan. So I did the interview. It was nice to get dressed up in a suit. The interview went well, but ultimately um, I didn't get accepted as I suspected. And when I didn't get accepted, I thought to myself, you know what? Now I'm interested. Now, <laughs> now I want to go <laughs> because they tell me I'm not good enough. And so that summer I went to St. John's and I took a couple of classes and I uh, learned how to study. And I was able that first semester at Cornell to go in as an extramural student. I wasn't matriculated. They didn't consider me a real student, but I could take three classes. And then hopefully at the end of the semester, I could show them, hey, look, I went to St. John's and I did well. I, I took three classes at Cornell. I proved I could handle the workload. Now would you accept me? That was my my plan. And I did well and I reapplied and they didn't accept me. And again, I was, they again, didn't accept you. Did not accept me. And I was pissed. And And their reason was a valid reason, which was, look, we can't let people come in this way because then everybody's going to skirt the the normal process and they're going to want to fake their way in this way. And and I said, I understand, but I'm going to do it again. And so I did a second semester and I reapplied and they did not accept me. You know, after three semesters of doing this, I was broken. I, um, I was, I was actually opposite of what I'm describing, uh, is in the Spartan way, you know, the resiliency and the grit wasn't there. I just, just didn't look like it was for me. And I was going to move back to New York. I had a business anyway, and and maybe college wasn't for me and I wasn't for college. So my mother hears of this and she says, look, I have a friend that I teach yoga to at Cornell. Would you mind meeting her? And I said, I don't, I don't mind. What's your name? Professor uh, Anita Racine. And so I sat down for lunch with her and uh, she said, how are you doing? I told her, she said, do you have any interest in textiles? And I said, I, I love uh, textiles. I didn't really know what textiles were, but I sell some T-shirts on the side as a business. And she said, OK, well, we have this department, this textile department. We, we study the industry of textiles and women's fashion and design. And there are 96 women in the program, but there's no men. Uh, do you like textiles? And I thought, I love textiles. <laughs> so this, this sounds fantastic. <laughs> and, and so Professor Anita Racine, she changed my life. She accepted me to Cornell, to her department. And if I had to do it all over again, I would, I would study uh, textiles again because I can go to any movie. I can watch anything on Netflix. Before I go to bed, I tend to watch 30 minutes of something to, to calm down. And, um, 
I can tell you what era that movie is from based on women's hemlines because of my degree at Cornell. But but joking aside, I, I really did learn a lot because it was a tumultuous industry at a tumultuous time. There were so many uh, U.S. textile mills that were going out of business and there were quota changes and they really taught us international business, which was which was awesome. I want to talk with you a little bit about your time as an undergrad, Natalie, and what you studied when you were at the University of Colorado in Boulder. But before I do, could you share how you personally have leveraged your multicultural, multilingual background as a huge professional asset? And in fact, you've called it cultural agility. Mm, mm. Yeah. You know, um, for anybody that's ever watched those hilarious Key and Peel skits. And if you haven't, dear God, do, because they are absolutely hilarious. They have some skits on code switching, right? So they'll, they'll have, you know, two African-Americans that are speaking very sort of proper white English business speak. And then five seconds later, talking more like they talk among their friends in whatever the local colloquial patois is, right? And that code switching, that ability to speak these different languages or dialects or even just accents, depending on what audience you're in, That's kind of what I mean by cultural agility. And I think that for me, having grown up, I would say tri-cultural, because even though Ecuador and Colombia are right next to each other, my father's family was absolutely working class. And my mother's family were a more educated sort of political family. And so just navigating that and the language and the culture between those two families, and then on top of that, being in a Spanish-speaking home, we required Spanish-speaking only. There was no English allowed in the house. And then going to school, you know, in the United States and having been born and raised here, I was exposed to all these different cultures. I had to navigate those cultures and switch languages, switch cultures. And I think what it did is it allowed me to then go into my world of globalization. So in my career, I specialized in helping American companies go abroad and succeed internationally. So if you can imagine, Disney Interactive has a very popular game that is wildly successful in the United States, but now that game has to go into France, Germany, Japan, China. And there are all sorts of things about that game that have to be not just translated, but adjusted. And one mistake could cause a geopolitical disaster, right? Um, And those are the sorts of things that I did in my career. And I look back and I would never have imagined it. But yeah, growing up multicultural absolutely gave me an edge. Now, I can totally see that in a Latin context. How did you apply it? You just mentioned Asia, other European countries where they don't necessarily speak Spanish. How did you apply that mindset to those different environments? You know, I think what being multicultural taught me was not so much about just the language. It was about that agility. It's about using that muscle, not making assumptions, knowing that my frame of mind is a construct of my culture, of my language, of all of these different things that I knew, but not taking it for granted that anyone would share that, right? And being open and being able to cross those bridges and and really be a bridge across cultures that it goes and transcends, I think, far beyond language. And I think that that's fun fundamentally what allowed me to build at its largest a 70,000 team in over 40 countries, right? And I think that the only way to have done that is to have sort of been predisposed to be comfortable in all of these places. I think as a kid, I had a choice. I could either believe that I belonged nowhere because I would go back to South America and my family would say, oh, you're Americanized, right? And and you're not like them. And then in the US, I'm, I'm everyone's token Latina friend, right? And I could have either taken that as I belong nowhere, or I could have done what I chose, which is to really embrace the idea that actually I belong anywhere. 
Shree, in most of the Time for Coffee interviews, I ask my guests to share a low time for them in their profession. I'm actually going to ask you a very specific question because it really was extraordinary the way that you handled this. You were working at the Met as the first chief digital officer there. You were so public about the fact that you got laid off. I mean, another way of putting it is you got fired from your job and you asked your followers for feedback as to where you should go next. And you got a thousand suggestions. Why did you decide to be so public? Well, thank you uh, for bringing up this because I think there are a lot of people can learn and have learned from that experience. Not a week goes by where someone doesn't drop me a note saying thank you for that episode in your life. And to sum up, as you said, I was doing the job of a lifetime in a career that was already wonderful, that I've been blessed in so many ways, working at the Met, bringing digital to the masses and the fans of art. And I loved everything I was doing. I had left Columbia on my own after having loved that episode in my life of 20 years. And uh, I also left uh, behind the tuition benefits that come from being a professor at Columbia for your kids. So I'd left something like a million dollars in tuition benefits for my children behind. But I said, hey, I got 17 Van Goghs. It was a good trade. <laughs> and, and I loved every minute at the Met. We were kicking butt, as they say, in every single measure of what we were trying to do, my and my team. And I was brought in one day and told I'm leaving the Met. And it was such a shock because nothing prepares you for that. And I thought I was being brought in for a specific meeting we were going to do. And instead, this is what happened. And I said, I'd work for free. I love my job. Just I'll do my own fundraising. But of course, there's no such thing in the real world. And I did go on to the internet and ask the internet for help. And in what was the worst moment of my life was also the best moment of my life because I got these 1400 people around the world gave me what I call a global digital hug. And it meant so much to me. So many people have said you've now taught your children the most important quality of all resilience, that life is not an elevator or an escalator. Life is a roller coaster. And I agree with all of that. I just wish they could have read a book about it or watch a TED talk. They don't need to have me be the TED talk in order to learn all that. But they've been great. My wife has been wonderful. And there's also an opportunity for all of us to do a shout out to the loved ones in our lives who support us through thick and thin. And that none of us does anything by ourselves. Everything that we do comes from all of us working together and helping each other out in what we need to do. How did you deal with the loss of face. And the reason that I ask you that is that I was laid off from CNN in 2007 after I had worked there for 14 years. And I wasn't as brave as you. I didn't go public. I didn't say I was basically fired. They chose not to renew my contract. I tried to spin it because I was concerned it would affect my ability to get my next job. And of course, there was a feeling of like, this isn't the way I wanted to leave. So how did you deal with that? It wasn't easy. And as I said, it became the best thing that I ever did going public. But in the moment, I certainly did not want to do that. The last two sets of people I told were my kids who would be worried that there's no Christmas this year. And my parents who wouldn't want a 46-year-old unemployed son, they, they, they wouldn't know what to do, how to deal with that. So I was 
very, very reluctant to go public. But I also understood the era we're in, the time we're in, the community I had built, the network I had built. So all of that mattered. I've written a series of tweets and we'll give you the link so that people can read them in the show notes, perhaps. But here, I'll just read these out very quickly because I think they capture how I was feeling and also how these job things happen. It's a job loss can happen anytime to anyone at any level in any organization. Job loss can happen no matter how well you're doing your job. Job loss can happen even if you're doing everything they ask of you, even if you're hitting every goal and it can happen even if you've had nothing but glowing performance reviews. Of course, many people lose jobs because they're terrible at their jobs, but that's a different story. But And nothing prepares you for job loss. It can all happen all of a sudden, or you might read the writing on the wall. Shock, disbelief, anger, a sense of betrayal, overwhelming sadness are all common reactions. And then on top of all of that, many of us fight ageism. I went to look for a job at one of the most progressive, iconic, liberal organizations slash leaders in America and felt ageism directly in my face. And nothing prepared me for that. Here I was thinking I'm Mr. Cutting Edge Digital Guy, and they couldn't figure out what a 46-year-old would know about digital. So all of this is not to wallow in my problems, but to say this happens to everybody. Well, thank you for your courage and your generosity to bring all of us into your personal struggle and your journey, because it is a journey. And here's wishing each and every one of you good luck in your journey, professionally and personally. Thanks so much for tuning in to this special T4C 200th milestone mashup. If you have any suggestions or feedback as to how we can improve T4C and make it more user-friendly and more accessible for you, or if you just want to say hi, you can email me at andrea at time the number 4coffee.org. And if you like this episode or any T4C episode that you listen to, please take a screenshot of it and share it out on your social media so that your friends can benefit from the wisdom, the insights, the expertise of so many professionals. Have a great week, everyone, and may your coffee cups always be full. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.